The middle cross is unique, but the other two are important as well. The text is Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. Luke 23, 32 to 43. I have that little residual throat thing, so if I cough once or twice, you won't freak out, right? Just... Luke 23, 32 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Strange words. You wouldn't think forgiveness is necessary if they didn't know what they were doing. If they knew what they were doing, then you'd think forgiveness would be necessary. I want to talk about that in a little bit. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, quote, This is the king of the Jews. 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Help us now, Jesus, as we look into your word, things that we know so well, let them come with fresh impact to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't know how you would verify that death by crucifixion is necessarily the most painful way to die. The writer of Hebrews talks about people who were sawn asunder. That's not even a nice picture to have when you go to Swiss Chalet. But there is something specifically agonizing about the kind of Roman execution that's described in our text. And it's relevant to the Good Friday teaching that I'm hoping to get across on the cross, life slips away more gradually. Other people watch. It's a myth when you see drawings and pictures with this cross that's 25 feet in the air and people standing around at the base looking up. The cross actually once in the ground would have been roughly six feet and a bit. In other words, people watching are staring you in the eyeball. They could spit on him. And so they watched. The victim drifts in and out of consciousness, 
usually in front of other people. So the victim doesn't just die, he, he, he knows he's dying. And one of the bitter features of Christ's death on the cross isn't maybe discussed a lot. And all the people around the cross, it seems, were cruel to Jesus while he suffered. It's one thing to suffer pain. It's another thing to be mocked while you're suffering pain. We usually choose, I know I am. If I'm sick, I just leave me alone. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see anybody. Poor me. We study the lives of great people who suffered and died. But that wasn't the case with Jesus. He wasn't a hero. No, nobody, nobody was with Jesus in his death. No one, no one seemed to be sympathetic, at least not very many. No one supported him. No one was on his side as he was dying. Whatever friends there might have been, for the most part, deserted him. He was, the Bible says, despised as he's dying. Despised. Rejected is the other verb. I don't know if there's anything more base or more depraved than to watch someone die, to know that that person is leaving this world and yet to hold nothing but mean, cruel thoughts toward that person as he dies. Jesus wasn't praised in his death. Jesus wasn't even admired in his death. Jesus wasn't understood in his death. The Bible says the people around the cross, they despised him and they mocked him as he died. That's pretty lonely. Matthew 15 Sorry, Mark 15, 27 to 32. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by, look, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, can't save himself. Look at him. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified. Now look, those who were crucified with him. This is the two thieves. The two criminals, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Note the plural, those. So that's what the Bible says. There was Jesus suffering and dying and everybody was slinging insults at him, including the two bandits crucified on each side. 32, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Both of them reviled him. So Matthew and Mark are pretty consistent in their witness that both criminals were mocking Jesus at the beginning. Now, one 
seems to change his mind as he watches Jesus closely on the cross. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But as Jesus is about to die, as God's plan reaches its peak, everything begins to sharpen and focus. Point number one. Here's what I see unfolding here. The darkness and willfulness of human unbelief is exposed. What, what Luke hints at, Mark says very directly, the mockers told Jesus to come down off the cross, save himself. It's in 1522. Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. What is this? These people, in all likelihood, easily could have seen Jesus raising the dead, heal the leper with a touch, open the eyes of the blind. They hadn't believed Jesus yet. So what kind of game are they playing here? There was no lack of evidence for who Jesus was. Jesus claims about himself. The proof was there for the world to see. They didn't want to see. The problem wasn't a lack of evidence. The problem was a dark heart. The problem was a rebellion against truth. The problem was a cherishing of sin and a love of darkness rather than light. That's what Jesus said the problem was. And that's important because we need to know what the reasons for unbelief are and we need to know that it hasn't really changed to this day. The Jewish people hated Jesus they trumped up charges to have him executed because, well, he told them their religion, their traditions were empty without the promised Messiah. They needed Jesus. Jesus was what the promises were all about. They needed the Redeemer. And, and, and then, as now, you can tell people almost anything more easily than you can tell them that their religion is useless without Jesus Christ. More than anything, religious people hate being told that their religion isn't good enough or that Jesus holds exclusive title as Redeemer of Mankind and Coming Judge. And the Gentiles, well, they hated Jesus because the gospel proves man can never reach God by his own wisdom, by his own efforts, by his own morality. It's a hard message to swallow. It takes uh, humility, it takes repentance to digest the message of the cross. You have to be willing to admit something terrible about yourself or you'll never embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. So just to be clear, nobody crucified Jesus because he said, love one another as I have loved you. No one crucified Jesus because he said it's better to give than receive. Now and then, people hate Jesus because he said, except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now we come to the account of the criminals and their words to Jesus on the cross. We should be grateful. Luke is the only witness, historian Luke, who records this conversation between these two criminals. It only took a few seconds Here's how it went. Luke 23, 
39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, you are, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It takes great faith to say that. When, when you're hanging on a cross, dying, and you're a criminal. You can do nothing to improve your life, to make yourself appear cleaner, more moral, more worthy. And somehow, in the midst of this mess, as his life slips away, He's got faith to say, Jesus has another kingdom. Like, that's unbelievable to me. I want to be in your kingdom, Jesus. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Point number two. Those who reject Jesus will find no other offer of God's grace. Their wish to be judged by their own sinfulness, apart from divine grace, will finally be granted. 2339, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The man has really no regard for who Jesus really is or what he came to accomplish on the cross. He's all bound up with self and wants to save his own skin. He doesn't care a hoot about being right with God. And here, here's, what you, here's what you need to notice. It, I had read this account a long time before this jumped out at me. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And this guy, notice gets no answer from Jesus. Total silence. Non-response. Jesus has grace for the guilty, but there would be no deliverance for the selfish and the unbelieving. Only judgment awaits those who reject God's Son. I think I need, we all need, this reminder from this uh, unrepentant criminal. Luke must have been stunned as he noticed it, and it's recorded for our learning. Well, we all have this natural tendency to imagine the love of God just kind of sweeps everyone up into heaven. Love wins, so says Rob Bell. But it doesn't appear to be the case. This guy gets nothing from Jesus, not even an answer. There comes to an unbelieving heart a kind of blindness that, that defies, it really defies logic. I mean, think about it. This man is about to die. He's a criminal. Nothing but judgment awaits him for his wicked life. The Redeemer who can save him is yards away. And all he can do is mock him?
Be careful what you do with what you know about Jesus. The Bible puts this haunting little question, Hebrews 2, 2, how, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's your plan? Point number three. One criminal had a radical change of heart about Jesus. Only Luke records the dramatic turning point in the conversation on the cross. It's in that uh, 29th verse, sorry, 39, Luke 23, 39 to 42. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed against him, railed at him, against him in some translations. It's not an invitation, it's a, a shot. That's the point. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Where did that question come from? Do you not fear God since... Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, you're about to die. Can't you fear God here? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. We'll never know for sure what it was the text doesn't say, that triggered this sudden turn. This, it's, it's like repentance is the word we would use in this bandit's heart. I mean, just on the face of the text, it seems, it seems that something in the first criminal's stubborn scorn and unbelief, it just awakens something in the second criminal's conscience. He changes his tune immediately, it seems, in reaction to that first criminal's taunts. Something happens. It is true, isn't it, that sometimes, sometimes sin looks uglier when we see it in someone else instead of ourselves. And he sees this hard-hearted, blind, dying sinner mocking Jesus Maybe that awakens something in him. And he says to the first, verse 40, he says to criminal number one, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? It's a wise question. He's saying to that first bandit, how can you not think about God right now? I don't get it. Where's your head? There come times, kind of critical moments in life, when it just seems you have to think about God, don't you? I mean, no one can afford to ignore God forever. At some point, there comes an urgency with what you do with God. I mean, it's always, of course, it's always the most important thing about us. But there are times when it presses in more consciously than others. And when you're facing death, don't you fear God, man? There are two factors that these criminals have to come to terms with. 
They're the same things we all have to come to terms with. They're guilty, that's why they're there, and they're dying. And criminal number two finally realizes that only, only a fool ignores God when you're facing these two realities. Suddenly, I mean, you're at the plate, it's a full count, three and two, the next pitch matters. Maybe there are people listening to me here or online right now who, who and you never think about God. I mean, I'm not saying you don't believe in God. You don't calculate God into your plans. You don't calculate eternity into your thinking. You're, you're all caught up in the present. And maybe, maybe you ignore the nagging voice of conscience that tells you every day you aren't right with God. That's what it means to not fear God. Or you believe there is a God, but you're hoping that he'll just overlook and ignore your unbelief and your sin. Well, that too is what it means to not fear God. That's what criminal number two is saying to criminal number one. How can you face certain death and a risky eternity without thinking about your own guilt and sin and God, wake up, man. Jesus offers forgiveness. Okay, how did criminal number two know that? What made him so sure Jesus would forgive guilty sinners? And Luke, the historian, fills in the gap for us. Criminal number two knew Jesus offered forgiveness to sinners because he had just heard Jesus pray, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. It's true, is it not, that being gracious being gracious to people who wrong us is still the strongest witness to the gospel. Being gracious to people who wrong us is still the strongest witness to the gospel. So something in the character of Jesus, something in the ugliness of sin, something in the seriousness of the moment, all these things knit together and change criminal number two's heart. He was mocking at the beginning, repenting at the end. Point number four. The elements of repentance and the gateway to eternal life. Luke 23, 40 to 43. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for, okay, we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I, I'm not preaching on this this morning. I don't take this to be going to heaven right away with Jesus. I take it in the sense of Luke 16. Look it up and we'll, we'll talk more about that. He'll be with Jesus in paradise. 
it all happens very quickly. Fair enough. This running out of breath exchange. And it begs some questions. But here's what we can see. This is the take-home stuff, all right? A, there's an honest acknowledgement of personal guilt and sin. 41. We're getting what we deserve. That's what the repentant criminal said to the other. Now, you might not be a criminal, but you're a sinner. And no one will get anywhere with God. No one will ever receive grace until that is faced squarely, honestly, humbly, and admitted. All have sinned. Come short of the glory of God. So, so this issue of personal sin, it really has to become the central issue needing attention. So this criminal, he has the advantage, I guess you could say, of knowing that his life was coming to an end. That might not be pleasant, but it, it does at least have one advantage. It makes it easier to focus on the central issue of eternity without the distractions of the busyness of life. Those things are stripped away. I think we know it's true. It's, it's the moment by moment, one event after the other, ordinary concerns of daily life, the doing of homework, the meeting with friends, calling the babysitter, getting that quote, ironing those shirts, cutting the grass. Those are the things that distract us from seeing eternity. Nothing makes it harder to deeply consider God than the ordinariness of daily life. Nothing makes it harder for us to concentrate on God than the ordinariness, the seeming ordinariness of daily life. The nearness of death that has the distinct way of sharpening our sight. This man, we're sinners, we're guilty. We're getting what we deserve. B, somehow he saw Jesus Christ as the one who could give him eternal life. I don't know how he reached all those conclusions. The text says he knew Jesus was righteous and pure. 41, this man has done nothing wrong. So at least somehow he saw purity in Jesus that went beyond anything he had seen before. He, we know he saw love, grace, and forgiveness he saw that. He heard Jesus praying for those who were killing him. Whatever it was, he saw Jesus as the one person who could save him. He cried out to Jesus. He didn't have to, but he did. It's what every person has to do. It's what every person has to do. Jesus said, so no man comes to the Father but by me. See, here's something else we see in this man. And I like it. In whatever way he could under his limited circumstances, he publicly took his stand with Jesus. I started out this teaching specifically trying to say that everyone, almost everyone around the cross, the religious leaders, the soldiers, the crowd, they were all mocking Jesus. Railing is the old word that gets used. Everyone was against Jesus. 
And this criminal who once sided with all the mockers, he stands up. You know what I mean when I say stands up. He plants the flag. And he openly sides with Jesus. Nobody else was. But he will. I'm, I'm, and whatever I can do, here's what I declare. It's wonderful. It's powerful. It, it marks, marks the presence of something that's really inwardly genuine. He refuses to let the barbs of the other criminal go unchallenged. He will straighten him out if he can. His faith isn't just talk. It's not just in his head. He can't do much for Jesus anymore, but what he can do, he will. He makes me feel ashamed whenever I allow the coolness of the spiritual tone of this age to dampen my own zeal for the Lord. I hope it does the same for you. He takes his stand when no one else around there was. D, we're almost done. Somehow, and I said it's amazing, he knows there's another kingdom coming. All the, the first thief, all he could do was think about his own skin. Save yourself and us. Get me out of this. But criminal number two, he, he, somehow he senses in this broken, bleeding, scrawny, gnarled-up body of Jesus on the cross. Get this. He sees a king. That's amazing to me. You're a king, and you have a kingdom. It's coming. We're in a mess right now. There's a kingdom coming. I want to be in that kingdom. I love it. Remember me, 42. Remember me when you come in or into your kingdom kingdom it takes no great grace just to live for the moment i mean all of us are pretty good at that living for ourselves for the present the bible says that no one no one really lives this life properly until he sees it as related to another kingdom coming consciously related to another kingdom coming life here is going somewhere else too. E, something else I like. Criminal number two, he won't allow his messed up past to keep him from receiving grace and forgiveness. I don't know where this finds you. Don't know where this finds you today. To me, it seems it would have been easy for this Second criminal to feel, I haven't, I haven't lived a very good life. And it's not going anywhere. And I can't do one thing to make reparations for my past. I can't fix anything that I've broken. I can't straighten out one thing that I've messed up. There's nothing I can do to save myself. I've seen a lot of people. Boy, over the years, almost 40 years in this church, I've seen a lot of people who think they're just too damaged for God to forgive and change. A lot of people who feel disqualified for anything good from God. And here's criminal number two. He won't write himself off. There's this wonderful simplicity, isn't there? 
Jesus, I can't do anything about my life now. I certainly have nothing to offer in terms of missionary service or tithing or worship. I don't have any time. You don't have a reason in the world to care beans about me. Just remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus. Never any hesitancy. Point number five, last point. Never any hesitancy on the part of Jesus to cleanse sinners and to take them to paradise. It's right there. Today, you'll be with me. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't look at him and say, you don't understand. You're a criminal. I wish you'd come sooner. You've let things go too far. Nope. Not the slightest word of correction. Not the slightest pause. Not the slightest moment of hesitation. Mm, Should we? Shouldn't we? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, you're with me. And he still works the same way. It's a simple gospel, church. He still works the same way. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus, I got nothing to trade here. Would you remember me? Would you remember Don Horbin, Jesus, with all the things going on? Would you just remember me when you come into your kingdom? Yeah, no question. It's Good Friday, right? No need to shop for another savior. And everybody that's relatively happy about that, would you say amen?